Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Uh, hi, welcome to 3CR. You're listening to Living Free Show um, on Community Radio, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial. Thanks to the Ruminations crew for another great show, uh, highlighting issues around homelessness. Uh, my name is Bill, and for the next hour, my guests will be sharing their journey of recovery from compulsive gambling. I'd like to welcome Steve and Chris to the 3CR studio this afternoon. Good afternoon, Bill. Hi, Bill. How are you going? Good. Um, they're members of Gamblers Anonymous, and they're going to share their experience of compulsive gambling and how Gamblers Anonymous works or helps them. Um, so I guess most people don't really understand why gamblers gamble. So, um, Steve, maybe you can talk about the gambling addiction and w- what it means to be recovered from a gambling addiction. Sure. I guess with um, gambling, when you first start gambling, you truly believe that it's about money. Um, like for myself, when I started at 15, 16 gambling, um, I had this desire that I wanted to, to make money and really fast. And early on, I had a couple of big wins and I thought, wow, what a great way to be able to uh, basically retire at a, at a very early age. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, <clears throat> that soon turned around and um, it became just a mental obsession for me. And, and gambling, like other addictions, it does manifest in the mind and in our thinking. Um, and today when I say that I'm a recovered compulsive gambler, I've recovered from that mental hopeless state of, of being um, where I no longer think about gambling um, in any shape or form. Right. So I've often heard it talk that um, you dream about winning. Is that a is that a a thing that occurs to you uh, at the start? That yeah, absolutely. I, I remember um, early on, like I, I was a horse punter and used to study the form a, a lot. Um, would watch video replays, and I remember a couple of particular horses watching their runs. And it's like next start, I can't wait for them to start. And you know, I had a lot of money on them, and and just that believing that you're smarter than the game yeah um you know that that starts to starts to come through um and all of a sudden you know then the you you cross that invisible line right okay um chris um you've been in ga for a little while um and you you didn't start gambling until sort of early 20s or so so how did how did it all start for you like what was it like growing up and you know coming becoming a gambler for me, Bill, um, it probably started, you know, early early twenties. It was more of an escape for me from uh, my family and from from reality. Growing up in a really big family, um, a little bit strict, a little bit uh, traditional. I I struggled a little bit. I felt a little bit different, and and at times I I couldn't really handle being at home. I didn't know where to go. Um, as such, I I did used to go a lot with my with my mum, and she sort of introduced me to what gambling was, and and for me it was an escape from reality. It uh, obviously you know turned into a crushing obsession um, that you know followed me around no matter where I went for um, for a few years. But uh, 
yeah, joining GA was probably the best thing I've ever done. Yeah. So when you say an escape, what, what did you feel you were escaping from? For me, if I had too much uh, going on at home with, with a, a large family or and, and any family would fight and argue and, um, you know, have a difference of opinions, that was pretty normal. But for me, I, I just felt like I couldn't handle it and I didn't really want to burden my friends with my own personal issues or my family life and and I felt like I had nowhere to go so you know it was sometimes it was just a difference of opinion you know and I, I didn't really handle that or take that very well so my escape would be to to go and gamble um, to avoid my personal issues with my family or to avoid my family in, ge- in general and you can lose a lot of hours um, you know gambling and and trying to numb it all you know whatever you, your issues Ah, it was it was sort of like an escape um, from reality, and it started off, you know, becoming numb from all the hurt and the pain and all that sort of stuff that goes around, you know, family issues and all that sort of stuff. Okay, um, so you started with the pokies, but initially you didn't really like the pokies. I never really knew what the pokies were. Um, I. I guess I was introduced to it uh, through my mum who who loved the pokies and would say, come along, you know, t- come have some time out and, and it progressed from there. You'd start off really small and then it turned into a big whopping obsession. Um, but I, it wasn't intentional. I didn't, it wasn't intentional to be in- introduced to the pokies. I never sort of sought out to say, oh, wow, cool, what's that? Let's do this. It, it was maybe accidental yeah. So it was something to do with your mum? Was that it? Yes, I think so. Yeah. Yeah, my mum, we, when I was um, married, my mum moved up to Corowa just after they, well, before Victoria allowed pokies. Um, and so people used to go up to Corowa and bet on the things. And my, we'd go up and stay with my mother. And she'd say, oh, we'll mind the kids while you go to the pokies. And we're going, oh, okay. So we'd go and we'd spend 20 bucks and lose 20 bucks and go bugger it, come home. But... She had she knew people who were addicted to gambling, and they were um, pensioners, and they just gamble their whole pension away. And she was going, oh, you know, they're, they're stupid. But there's more to it, isn't there? So, uh, Steve, so it's not just gambling; it's the desire to have money. Yeah, <clears throat> there's a couple of parts to it. There's the desire to have money, but there's also much research around that says gamblers subconsciously want to lose their money to punish themselves. Ah, okay. Um, and I think part of that towards early on, I was definitely a gambler gambler that wanted to gamble to win, um, you know, because I had dreams of being able to buy the family farm off, off mum and dad and, um, you know, buy all of, all of these material things. Um, but by the very end, I would definitely say that I was a gambler that that gambled to punish themselves. Um, you know, I'd cross that invisible line and, and I would promise myself time and time again that I'll never go back to a venue. Um, and there were times that I don't actually remember, you know, and I was stone cold sober, remember leaving work and then I would come to and I was in a gambling establishment and I'm like, how did I get here? Yeah. Um, I think it was just so ingrained and so programmed. Right. Um, Chris... You're, you started gambling in pokey venues and I suppose you started 
how did you start? What what sort of bets were you? For me, I, I really started off um, small, minimum bets, um, nothing too uh, crazy. I tried to, you know, have a little bit of control and and while I was stepping away from my life as such and, and going to a venue and, and sitting on the pokies, um, you know, it wasn't really collateral damage financially. It was more an emotional thing for me. And, and you start off small and, and you think you're okay and you think everything's fine and you think you're living a normal life but what you don't know when you're gambling um or if you're addicted to gambling a compulsive gambler is that it manifests and it grows and it it really does spiral out of control because we can't harness it or we may not have the personality where twenty dollars fifty dollars whatever the amount is is acceptable for us it just it doesn't stop once we place that first bet. It keeps going. And for me, I started off really small and then the obsession took off and, and you know, large sums of money meant absolutely nothing and it was just um, to a point where it, it all exploded and, um, you know, starting off small to absolutely, you know, everything I had, everything that I did was to gamble um, and if I was out of money and I couldn't gamble, I'd want to completely end my life. So I needed to continue. Um, it was it was um, definitely something that spiral, spiraled out of control for me. Sounds like a merry-go-round, yeah. Yeah, definitely a vicious cycle. Yeah. Um, so it must have put a lot of pressure on your work and your family relationships? I think while you are in uh, the obsession or while you're gambling um, compulsively, you really, really struggle to manage your life and your family and your friends and your job. Every You don't really concentrate or appreciate what's around you you might be able to you might sit down and have a conversation with something but you're not actually taking any of that in you you might be at work but you're not present your mind is thinking about what venue you'll go to what machine you'll sit on how much money you have to spend where will i get more money because i want to spend more money your relationships with the people around you your your friends your family even your work colleagues um, disintegrate just because you, you you can't sit still for more than an hour or half an hour. You, you want to go and um, escape everyone and, and everything. So it definitely affects your life. It, it becomes unmanageable. Yeah. So did you actually make any friends gambling? No, I like to keep to myself. I, I never – I mean, you talk to the person next to you and have a bit of a – have a bit of a laugh but if they look so much as looked at you awkwardly because you were winning you know you you'd become angry and and upset and think don't jinx me or you know you would just sort of I don't really think there was any friendship in in gambling it was more the only friend that you had was the machine if you were winning yep okay uh what about you Steve was there any friends in gambling um <clears throat> I think early on because I was a horse punter you know we were at the start of the day, everyone had their tips and what was going to win, and it would build up that camaraderie. 
um, so to speak, within the TAB and everyone was happy and jovial because you basically had that head full of hope um, at the start of the day and, you know, those big dreams that we dreamt about early in the morning were all about to come to fruition. Um, but at the very end, I, I too was a, was a pokey punter and I couldn't stand people. Um, you know, what I loved about the poker machines was just that complete isolation um, and the only thing I had to look at was a screen. Yep. You know, and I too, similar to Chris, was, you know, if there were people gambling, if they talked to me, if I was winning, that was okay. But if someone spoke to me when I was losing, God, God help them. Um, <laughs> anything was possible to, to come out of my mouth. But, you know, it's, we say it's a social place that we go to, and it does, and it can start out social, but the very end, it's just, it's just loneliness. You know, we're going there to, to escape um, and it's not a financial reasons we're going there. Um, it, it's definitely an, a, an emotional reason because, you know, something upstairs isn't quite working right for us. Right. So it, it's very, very sad. Yes. Yeah. <clears throat> so, um, Chris, you were talking about want, feeling like you wanted to die at the end because you had no money and you realised what you'd done. So can you sort of talk about what that what that's like to feel coming out of a, a venue, having lost everything, and you know, when you didn't mean to do that? I think when the when the obsession takes over you really 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 struggle when you run out of money. The venue or the pokies was an escape for you and the only place that you could go there um sorry the only time you could go there was if you had money. So, you know, no no amount of money, no amount of salary that that you had is enough. Um and if you left and had lost all your money or if I had left and lost all my money I'd be so upset and I'd be so depressed because I had done it again I didn't have any money forget about eating and and smoking and functioning or going out like you know young people do these days or going out with my friends forget all of that I I didn't have money to live and I didn't have money to continue um, or to be able to go back to the pokies. So I would walk out absolutely shattered and I would I would pray and I would wish and I would hope that, you know, I'd be hit by a bus so I didn't have to continue, you know, this, this cycle of mayhem in my head. Um, it's probably one of the toughest things, you know, to, to go through all that I've been through in, in my life, uh, the gambling obsession. Yeah. Um, yeah, we were also talking earlier about um, the difference between alcohol and drugs and gambling. And Steve was mentioning that at least with drugs and alcohol, you spend money and you get something back. But with gambling, inevitably, you get absolutely nothing back. So that must be a shocking realisation that you've just wasted all that time and effort and all that money. Yeah, and I guess to sort of qualify that as well, you know, I identify as a, as a recovering or recovered alcoholic and recovered drug addict as well. Um, so I've had all three addictions. Um, and for me, the one that was so demoralizing was gambling for that reason of, you know, we can go and buy alcohol and there's only a certain amount of alcohol you can drink and you will go into blackout. But with gambling, often you would go in there Um and you would blow every last cent, and then you would walk out, and the problem that you would have is you were stone-cold sober. Um, 
and it was one of the most harrowing, heartbreaking things of to walk out to a venue because you may have promised family or friends that you know you'd never do that again, and here you were absolutely completely broken quite often it would be the first day of payday or the second day of payday and you could have you know anywhere from one week to two weeks where you're just completely broke um you know and i'm talking not even enough money for food or so it would kick you into survival mode so you'd have to start to borrow for for cigarettes or smoking at the time for food um and even then there were periods where it had you know 48 72 hours where i mightn't have eaten for um and i was just so hungry and i would manage to borrow money off someone and you'd think the first place you'd go to would be to go and get food um unfortunately it wasn't it was what i'll do is i'll go to the venue first um and try my luck and sure enough you'd lose that and you would just back to that that same position so you know desperation would then kick in it was horrific Sounds dreadful. Sounds to somebody who doesn't gamble, it, it sounds shocking. I, I know what it's like to lose a bit of money. Yeah. You know, if you do if you do a deal or you agree to buy something you didn't really want, you go, oh, you know, bugger it. But they're so few and far between. But for it to happen so frequently, it must be devastating. Yeah, and like I, for myself, you know, this happened over a period of twenty five years. Yeah. Um, you know, and I had some really amazing jobs where I earned huge amounts of money, and and often I was. I was continually broke, um, you know, even from simple things like shoes. I remember the middle of winter sometimes that I'd have holes in my shoes. Um, I'd be walking to a venue or to, to a TAB with, you know, colossal amounts of money in my pocket. Next door there was a shoe shop where I could buy shoes for $100, but I just couldn't see the value in buying shoes then and there. <laughs> because in my head what I was going to do is I was about to have this massive win. I was going to be able to go and buy much better shoes. Um you know, and it's just devastating, you know, and, and I can only imagine what it's like for the family, but the worst part for myself of being that gambler was walking out and not only knowing what I've done to myself, but then knowing that I had to go and tell my family or, or partners that I've just actually lost everything again. Yeah, to face up. Yeah. So, um, Chris, what's it like to, to face up to someone, particularly your family or your friends, and just Tell, could you tell them what you'd done? For me, I hid it completely um, from my family. I wouldn't tell anyone where I was. I would lie about where I was. I would do everything that I could to keep it a secret because the shame that came around it, from you know, or that comes around, you know, losing all your money and... And not being present, not being, you know, around your family when there's when when there's functions on and things like that. It took me probably um, a good, you know, eight or nine years to be able to tell my sister um, of, you know, the the struggle that I had been through or that I was going through, and probably the best thing I did. But you know, still till today, my family doesn't actually know that I you know, was compulsively compulsively gambling for, for years and years and I think it's really hard because what you do is you, you take it out on your whatever it is, you know, that, that sends you into oblivion um, with gambling is you, you take it out on your family, you take it out on your friends and only really a handful of people know um, the reason why I was the way I was um, due to gambling might my uh, 
immediate family, in my immediate family, only my sister knows the truth. Mm. Right. Okay. Um, thank you. Hi, ah, welcome back to Living Free Show on 3CR, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial and 3CR on digital radio. Ah, oh, yeah, so um, I'm pleased to advise that we're now podcasting our shows um, and we have nine episodes available from the Living Free webpage, which is 3cr.org.au forward slash livingfree, and they're also on iTunes. I'll be podcasting each new show and also progressively including our earlier shows as time permits. You can also contact us at 3crlivingfree at gmail.com if you want to ask a question or comment on the show. Um, I'm talking to Steve and Chris about gambling and recovering from gambling. Um, And we've just been talking about sort of the effect on the families and the interaction between the gambler and the family. And um, it's fairly common in drug and alcohol and also in um, gambling uh, addictions that um, the family is really ashamed to talk outside the family about what's what's happening inside the family. Um, so Steve, do you want to, can you just, I guess, share about the sorts of things that can happen because the family aren't prepared to admit to anybody else that their child is a, a drug addict, a gambler or a uh, an alcoholic. Yeah, I think you know, and that's one of the main things that that addiction really feeds on is is shame. And and from my part, I remember early on when I was nineteen, and I'd had my first suicide attempt. Um, I'd lost a heap of money and left a venue. And when I came out of that venue, I drove straight into a tree to try and end my life. Um, one because I was so ashamed that I'd actually just lost all my grandfather's inheritance money that he'd left me, um, and I didn't know how to how to face my family with what I'd done um, I'd seen myself as a complete failure so there was a lot of shame on my behalf but what happened was I, I got taken to the hospital and when mum and dad came into the room I told them that I'd tried to commit suicide and both of them said whatever you do don't tell anyone about that because you'll get in trouble um, and instantaneously I saw the shame in their face that that their child one had tried to kill themselves um, you know, whereas a family, they tried to do the best that they could, and here they had a son that wanted to kill himself, um, so they felt like they had failed. So there was a, a huge amount of shame around that. Secondly, they were obviously scared that because I tried to kill myself, that that would have got me put into a probably into a psych ward or a men- mental institution um, to check out what was wrong with me. So there was going to be a lot of shame that wow, not only do we have a compulsive gambler and an alcoholic at this stage, um, son but we've got one that wants to kill himself now into a into a mental ward. Um, and what it allowed me to do was, I guess I identified and I saw that weakness. Um, and from there, I was pretty much able to blackmail any amount of money that I wanted out of them. Um, and when it all sort of really came to a head um, another 18 years later, so, you know, I still managed to use a lot of the shame around, you know, you took me to the races first, so it's your fault. So they had a lot of guilt and a lot of shame around that to even when I was about to go to a rehab, there was a, a cheap rehab um, where I lived. Um, and I said to my to my mum, oh, I'm going to go to this rehab because that's all I can afford. And she goes, over my dead body, you've caused this family enough shame and embarrassment. Um, so I said, well, what about this one in overseas? So they fronted up another huge amount of money to, to send me overseas to, to protect their shame. And even today... Um, 
with close immediate family, they have a lot of shame around that I'm a, a recovering um, compulsive gambler. They can live with to a degree. Recovering alcoholic, um, they're probably a little bit proud. But the fact that I'm a recovering ice addict, um, my mum today just can't bring herself to even put those words into a sentence because there's shame, you know. They have a feeling and and something inside them that makes them feel embarrassed that they haven't quite done a, a good enough job. Um, and I think that's rather common um, with people in the fellowship that I hear it quite a lot. And even when Al-Anon, I've been to some Al-Anon meetings as well, that, you know, they feel like they've they've failed, that they've let it down. Um, where, I, where something that I would say to people is, one, shame can never ever survive once we put light on it. And even though it may be a tough topic, the more support you can have, and if you can share that with immediate family and friends and get yourself a support network, it's actually been proven that you will get through recovery and you'll get recovered a hell of a lot faster than trying to do it one all by yourself. Um, and one thing that I can pretty much guarantee most people out there, uh, an addict or a compulsive gambler in full flight, you know, will go to whatever lengths and, and we will use shame against people where if you have that network and that shame because you, you're not scared to tell your family anymore, um, you know, it, it leaves us basically looking at ourselves and, and all of a sudden we start to get help and, and life will get better. Yeah. Yeah. Um, my dad was an alcoholic and my mum wouldn't call him an alcoholic because she couldn't use those words because they meant, they meant the guy in the, in the raincoat with a bottle in a brown paper bag yeah. under a bridge. That's what it meant to her. Yeah. So she couldn't use that word, it, those words. Yeah. It also feels like that she's failed as a person in picking yeah. a partner. Yeah. Like, you know, imagine looking at yourself and going, the person that I've fallen in love with is an alcoholic. How did I get this so wrong? Mm. What's wrong with me? Um, you know, so it's quite confronting on both parts, but particularly for a parent, um, you know, that they feel like they've failed in what they did or how we brought them up. Or, um, but unfortunately, I think, you know, we're just born with this disease and, um, and that's what it is. But more importantly, that it is something that we can recover from. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Um, Chris, so how did it manifest with you and your family as far as money went? Did you ask them to help? Did, for, and did they? For me, I mean, I worked full-time um, and I had a full-time salary, uh, paid fortnightly, and it was it was as if I would take a full-time salary from my, from my dad um, to get through life um, because I was always rock-bottom broke. I was always... Um, the, the money would hit my account and... You know, that day it would be gone for the next two weeks. I'd be completely broke, no petrol, um, no food. You know, I really could not afford to live. And uh, for me, the the amounts of money that I would ask my family for um, would, you know, would be a full-time wage, another full-time wage. And and half that money I would go to a venue with. Um, I remember... I would. I was really, really behind in a, in my personal loan that I had secured my car against, and they had come to repossess my car. I think it was a Saturday morning, and I was in absolute. I was in absolute tears. I, I I don't know why. I think maybe because I knew where all my money had gone. I I stopped repay, making my repayments, and 
I was really ashamed and I was I was pretty shattered at my my actions. But um, I remember my dad saying, "Don't don't take her car. Whatever she owes or is outstanding in arrears, we'll pay that today for you in cash. Don't worry about it." And my dad said to, and I still remember he wrote me a check, um, and he said to me, "I don't want to see a single teardrop fall from your eyes." Here's a check. Go to the bank right now. Cash it in and put the money on your car. And and I didn't. They, they didn't repossess my car. But you know, Dad had no idea, absolutely no idea that the money that I was working for, I was spending, taking money from them, from my parents. And then my dad would turn around and say to me, "I don't want to see a single teardrop fall from your eyes." You know, it just the shame and and the you know. Um, I guess I felt absolutely gutted, but at the same time, I I, I really had lost all control. Um, and I I went to I remember I went to the bank, and Dad had given me a little bit extra, and I had put it on the loan and brought it all up to date, and and the extra seven hundred dollars, you know, that Dad had given me, I had taken, and surely enough, I would go back to a venue so. Um, and I went back to a venue, and Dad had no idea. So really, I guess for me, my family was affected. My, you know, my the amount of money that my brother would lend me, give me. Yeah, that's um, okay. Yeah, uh, yeah, it was definitely something that, you know, really, 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 really. Um, I guess it's, you know, I really struggled with. So did you, was your dad the only one who was giving you money? No. um, My sister, you know, she'd be at home in bed with her husband in the middle of the night and I'd be ringing her flat out um, just so she could transfer money into my account. I'd say I had an emergency or I left all my money at home because what I would do sometimes to, to stop myself is I would withdraw cash or the money from my account, and I would leave it at home in cash. So then, when I when I would go out, I wouldn't have money to gamble. But that never stopped me. I would always be ringing my sister and saying, "I need you. I'll, I'll pay you back. Can you? I need you to. I've got the money. It's at home. Can you just transfer me some money, or or my, you know, I'll just take money from my from my brother. You know, I'd say I need you to transfer me this amount this amount of money, and and he would and. I'd get it and I'd lose it in five minutes and, and I'd lie to him and I'd say, I didn't get it, can you um, can you transfer again? He said, what do you mean? Like, I've, it's left my account, I transferred it to you and I'm saying, I'm I'm telling you it didn't hit my account, you need to do it again and I'd actually gotten that money and lost it. So, you know, the, the trail of destruction just continues. So your family was very supportive. I... <sighs> Look, I'm, I'm probably I can look back today now and say that I'm wholeheartedly blessed, truly blessed to have such an amazing family and they don't know the truth, but I was a mess of a human being um, and I would take so much money from them and I guess if it wasn't for them, then I don't really know where I would be only because I, I lived through them because my money meant nothing. And I took their money and that money meant nothing, but they sort of kept me alive and fed and clothed during the obsession. So you didn't care about anything except gambling? 
When I was gambling, everything around me um, could go to hell. I didn't care about my friends. I didn't care about my family. I didn't care about my job. I would treat people like absolute garbage. Nothing meant anything to me, absolutely nothing. I had no emotions. Um, it was like the humanity switch had turned off. I had no humanity. Um, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you say. Nothing would really reach me. Nothing would really um, appeal to me. I would just be thinking about my next next bet. I would be dreaming about my next bet. I would be thinking about where I'd get this money from. And I would do anything, you know, anything um, to to get more money, lie, cheat, steal. Um, it doesn't matter. It didn't matter. Nothing mattered um, to me. I had no... I was inhumane. Right. So at some point you must have decided enough's enough. I, I was talking to a life coach um, who I found and, um, you know, they, they were super expensive and I just my life wasn't my life wasn't really going anywhere I, I couldn't manage I was and you know what for me it was I was so categorically depressed and I wanted to die every day and I thought to myself it's either I recover or do something to get out of this mess or I kill myself and I don't know how, but I chose life over death. And I had told my sister um, and she actually found GA for me and that was probably the the best thing that I that I ever did in my life. But it was it was either get help or, or kill yourself for me. Right. Okay. Um, so when you found GA, Gambles Anonymous, did you fit in? When I walked into the rooms... It was probably, you know, a lot, a lot of older people, a lot older than me or, or people that had been there for years and had grey hairs and I thought, oh, I don't really know. I don't really know what, I, what I'm doing here. And I um, I remember walking into the rooms and I felt like I was choking on my own heart. I, I couldn't breathe. And that night, you know, I, I sort of left GA and I went to, I still went to a venue and I had been to a venue before I went. So, you know, it was it was a bit of a struggle. And, and that night I remember I, had, I lost every single cent that I had and I just said to myself, what are you doing? You know, do, do you want to do this or do you want to die? And and from the next day forward, um, I, I guess I put everything I had into the GA program. At the start it was, you know, it just sounded like rubbish to me. Um, but... I kept coming back and everything that, that people in the room would talk about would actually hit home and touch my heart and I, I would listen. And I remember there was a few times where I, I, I literally felt like my heart was about to snap into two pieces because everything that they had suffered or that they were suffering, that's what I went through. Mm. Yeah. I think part of that as well is when you walk into the into a whether it's a JA meeting, an AA meeting or an NA meeting, we all have a similar experience. It's either they're too old, they're too young, there's too many women. Um, there's anything but, oh, 
wow, how great is it that I finally met a lot of people similar to myself? Because at that point we realised that, you know, maybe the the jig's up and, and we have to, um, and here's where we belong. Yeah. You know, and I remember even saying to, to family and friends early on, oh, people at, at these meetings, they're like this and they're like that. And, you know, you almost want to try and put it down so that you don't have to keep going back. Um, you know, and I think that's quite a common thing. You know, and often people will bring their family and friends um, along to meetings. They're like, "This wasn't how I explained it." So, you know, I can relate to can relate to that with Christine. You know, I, I too thought everyone was was too old there, and then when I went to NA meetings, I thought everyone was too young. So, <laughs> you're listening to Living Free on 3CR digital radio and live streaming on 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. Uh, I just noticed we had a community um, announcement here that I'll just slot in. Uh, there's a community rally to save public housing. No sell-off to the developers. Don't let our communities be destroyed. Um, and it's a public meeting, um, and it's on Saturday the 14th of October at 1pm, uh, Debney's Park, 3 Mount Alexander Road in Flemington. I'm talking about recovering from compulsive gambling, and I've got Steve and Chris with me. Um, and... Talking about coming into Gamblers Anonymous and the changes that happen uh, in your life. So, Chris, what sort of things, what, what did you feel when you realised that you didn't have to gamble anymore? I wake up every day now with a smile on my face. I don't want to die anymore. I want to live. Um, life is completely different and... All I know is that it's probably been the hardest thing that I've ever been through um, in my life and obviously you still go through it sometimes and you still struggle with normal life and, and come back to reality but it's absolutely beautiful to say that um, I've been to – I go to GA, I've, I've done the 12-step program, um, 12 Steps to Recovery, similar to um, AA – my life, every day I wake up, wake up and, I, and I'm grateful. I And, you know, I used to think it was I came into the room thinking maybe it was financial. I need to, you know, I have no money. But it turns out that it actually it, it's got nothing to do with money for me. It was more the peace of mind. I had no peace of mind. All I had was noise in my head. And I may not have had the guts to kill myself but I, I thought about dying every. I thought about dying and gambling every single day. I'm not like that anymore. I smile for no reason. I'm just happy. Um, you know, the the biggest thing probably for me as well is the humanity switch. When I was in that obsession, I, I felt absolutely nothing towards anyone. Um, no, no humanity, and and now. I can sit down for an hour with my best friend and have a cup of tea and not be in a burning rage to leave. I can just be um, present. I can um, enjoy the sunshine. I can enjoy time on my own. I can I can focus at work and, you know, be able to do or be able to live as normally as, as anyone would live. And to me, you know, um, GA was the key to freedom. Mm. Um, so... What? How did they notice? Did, did they notice at work that you had changed? A lot of people had noticed. Um, 
and it's funny because I, I think I have spoken to Steve about it. You know, I, I people would say to me like, "What happened to the you know the old Chris?" And she was I was so care I was to them I was carefree and reckless and hell bent on you know always in a rush, and I would I would smoke two cigarettes in about you know mad burning rush and everything was a rush and and I didn't care and to hell with the world and now I I'm just calm and and happy and peaceful and relaxed and you know everyone sort of looks at me even my family um and they just think you know who is this person you know she's you know at home you know they love it It, it's amazing it's great she's you know she's completely changed at work you know it was probably a little bit hard um because of the industry that that I work in you know a lot of people or a lot of us um would go out and and drink and you know party and you know I guess it was sort of I fitted into a reckless kind of environment and now I'm I'm okay I don't need to go out and rage and go and you know gamble all my money away and my feelings and my emotions I can just be happy yeah <laughs> Yes, it's a good feeling. Um, it didn't happen immediately, though. It did. It took you a little while to sort of get over the the um, the gambling venue fix. It was probably um, an emotional. I call it, you know, emotional whiplash or or uh, an emotional roller coaster because I truly believe there's there's you know three parts to it: abstaining. Um, recovery and then recovered and I believe that at the start the day after I came to that GA meeting I I wanted to try and commit to the program and and commit to GA and I was abstaining from gambling I um, hadn't started the 12-step program but I was in absolute agony I was absolutely miserable and I would lock myself in my room I would you know self-confinement because I thought if I left my room I would go to a venue or I would sit in my car by myself for four hours just rocking myself um, because I was dying to to go and, um, you know, start gambling again or, or go to the pokies. And I'd say to myself, I'd only put this, I'd only put 20, 20 bucks in, I'm out. $50, I'm out. I, and it was, you know, it was just torture for probably about, I don't know, maybe just over four weeks. I was... Oh, I was a mess um, and, you know, it was it was a nightmare. But, you know, through the program, through the members, through the fellowship, um, I got through and it wasn't easy. Um, I would have emotional meltdowns. I would have – I would just absolutely lose it and say, that's it, I don't care, everything can go to hell, I'm, I'm going to gamble, um, you know, and, and touch base with a GA member and they'd say, hey, let's go to a meeting together or, hey, why don't you come out for a coffee? Um, and it just it got me through the abstinence period um, to the sort of recovery period um, where I, I, I said, I, I don't want to suffer anymore. I'm done. I can't do this anymore. So um, it definitely was a little bit of a struggle, but good to be here today. Yep. So how important is uh, doing the steps and having a sponsor? For me, I was I was probably in a little bit of a, a mad rush or I really wanted um, a sponsor and I, I wanted to do the 12... I didn't really know what the 12 steps were or I would hear people talking about 
um, the 12 steps to recovery and the arch to freedom and, and things like that um, at, at, in the meetings. I didn't really understand it, but I knew there was a correlation between recovery and the 12-step program. So um, a sponsor, I think you need, you, you can't recover on your own. You, th- you sort of think that you can, but you can't because you're trying to take every day at a time and sometimes being human um you know we we stumble and we we can fall so when you have someone um who's just by your side to check in and and make sure you're okay and to guide you through um recovery it makes it makes it a whole different ball game so for me um I wanted a sponsor because I didn't want to be um, alone I wanted to to go through it with someone who had taken the steps to recovery and I wanted to do the 12 step program because I wanted to end the 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 suffering and the misery and the depression and the torture that would all spiral around in my head so for me and for, for anyone out there you know it's it's not easy um, it's a hundred percent a journey but you know, there is definitely help and, and getting a sponsor and doing the 12 steps is, you know, uh, a key to freedom. Okay. Um, so, Steve, do you sponsor people? Yeah, I've got um, four or five sponsees at the yep. moment. Um, and I think that's the most beautiful gift of the program is is having sponsees where you can actually see them grow in front of you. Um, and we all go through exactly the same journey. You know, we, we come into the rooms and one of the hardest things to realise is that when we get there of just how sick we are, you know. I was that sick when I got to the rooms. I didn't even know I was sick. Um, but all of a sudden, you know, what I did was I, I took the, the cotton wool um, out of my ears and put it into my mouth and, and I listened and I managed to then see a sponsor that, that had this freedom and sense of peace that I'd never witnessed before. Um, and they took me through the through the 12 Steps um, and then from there, you know, I've been able to pass on this beautiful gift. Um, you know, it, it's it's we can't truly ever have freedom until we've given it away. You know, we often talk about um, in order to get it, you've got to give it away. You know, and I'm a big believer that, you know, by sponsoring and working with people, um, it gives us a freedom that we've never experienced before. Mm. Yes, it is good. Um, yeah, I think that was the, the basic principle of... Um, when AA formed was that Bill W couldn't stay sober unless he helped somebody else. Yeah, he knew that. Yeah, yeah. And I think I think the first ninety six people that he took through, um, they didn't quite get it, and he, he did say to his wife, "I don't think this is working." She goes, "Well, are you still sober?" And he said, "Yes, I am." You know, and that's all we can do. Yeah, yeah. You know, because sometimes we can't tell whether the other person's had enough suffering. Yes. Yeah. You know, and and I think in order to to really want this. We have to get to a point that we put up our hands and and hit that rock bottom of, of saying, I need help. Yep. Um, and for me, that was true rock bottom was asking for help because I was pretty arrogant and self-centered and, and self-righteous and, and asking for help was, was very, very foreign to myself. Uh, um, so one of the things we usually ask at the end, Chris, is what would you say to somebody who is not enjoying their gambling and thinking they should do something about it. So what what would have reached you at that point? I think that 
there's probably three three or four things that, that stand out to me and and one of them is if you're struggling with any addiction you know you you might not know this but there is definitely help out there whether it's you know GA or AA or NA it doesn't matter you know um an addiction can can bring you to your knees um but there is always a helping hand um out on the other side um or there, there's a helping hand out there so so don't forget that um I know sometimes it's it's dismal and you just want to die and you give up and you have no hope and, and you're miserable and you know um, you think I want to die but the if you make it out to the other side and you choose life over death um, you will live a beautiful and happy content life with peace and, and with freedom um, and the third thing I think um, that really sticks out for me is that you know GA or or the fellowship, um, the twelve step program is is really um, a major part of of recovery, and they are absolutely um, absolutely freeing. And to be able to uh, get through that, and to to do that, and to be loved and give love back to the program is is probably a massive blessing. So you know, just hang in there. Okay, thank you. Um, well, I think we're just about at the point of ending the show. Um, so I'd like to thank Steve and Chris. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks very much, Bill. Uh, for coming in and sharing their Gamblers Anonymous recovery experience with us. Um, I hope you'll be able to join us again next week when we'll be talking about recovery from compulsive drinking and be joined by a couple of members of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, thanks for listening today to the Living Free program. Uh, but stay tuned now for Black Noise Radio, hosted by Kerry Lee and featuring black news and views, current affairs, music, sport, culture and the arts, all from an Aboriginal woman's perspective.